She says, look, we are living in a time when so many people are looking for their identities, are looking for a simpler, you know, gentler way of life. Then the Islamic State comes along and says, look, we can build something new together, something fresh together, something new, but also something that harkens back to the to the days that we've always been told are the most beautiful days in Islam, the, the days of the Prophet Muhammad. That's a pretty seductive potion right there. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week is journalist Carla Power. In 2017, Carla published If the Oceans Were Ink, An Unlikely Friendship and Journey into the Heart of the Quran, which chronicled her friendship with a madrasa-trained sheikh and religious scholar who led her through a deep reading of the Quran. That book was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. In her new book, Home, Land, Security, De-Radicalization and the Journey Back from Extremism, Carla, an American who spent large parts of her childhood and adolescence in countries like Afghanistan, India, and Egypt, confronts some of the questions she hadn't engaged with in her last book, namely, what draws ordinary Muslims into violent extremist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and how reliable are the roads back? Through dozens of interviews with ex-jihadis, their family members, and those who seek to rehabilitate them, Carla connects the dots of a constellation of reasons and motivations to join extremist groups. The patterns that emerge are both surprising. In one case, an entire extended family was lured by the promise of a better life in the Islamic State, and all too familiar. Social media plays a role, no surprise. Carla spoke with me about what her reporting taught her about human loneliness, cultural isolation, youthful impressionability, and most of all, how what's commonly referred to as the Islamic world is in fact many worlds, each with their own characteristics and complications. Carla Power, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Your new book... Homeland Security. I'm sort of tempted to put it under the category of geopolitical psychology, if there is such a thing. (laughs) I might have have just made that up. (laughs) Um, In it, you, you ask the question of many different people in many different ways of what draws somebody into a violent extremist group. And here the focus is on Islamic radicalism and what can bring somebody back from that. Uh, But before we get to that question, I want to touch on a brief anecdote from your introduction, and that pertains to your previous book, which I also want to touch on a bit. You talk about having drinks with a friend who works in national security for her country, and she says, you're not going to give me that pat line about Islam being a religion of peace again, are you? So why don't you start by saying how you have come to a place where you find yourself in this role as a kind of, um, if not cultural, at least intellectual ambassador to Islam from the West? Oh, my goodness. I, I don't know if I would consider myself that, but um, I've always been interested in how the West sees um the, the Muslim world, or there is no Muslim world, but Muslim societies. 
and what sort of preconceptions and prejudices go into that. This partly comes from um, having grown up partly in the Midwest and partly in pretty much every, <laughs> every country that was later toppled by a coup, Iran, Afghanistan, India, uh, Egypt. And so I sort of shuttled between um, being sort of feeling like an outsider in the Midwest and being an expatriate in these countries. And so I got very interested in, in what goes into our images of, of the Muslim world. And as you say, that was very much a basis for If the Oceans Were Ink, where I sort of sat and had a listening exercise with a sheikh who had very different worldviews from mine uh, and trying to find common ground there. So after that, when, <laughs> after that book came out and a lot of people were saying, you know, what about, what about Islamist terrorism? How do you explain that? Uh, and this friend of mine who, who said, you know, yes, <laughs> you know, you're not going to give me that old line again. But in fact, I kind of was. I was kind of in, I, I kind of didn't want to examine the role of Islam in extremism and sort of decided to keep lockstep and say, well, it's so much better to amplify the vast majority, which is peaceable and flexible and pluralistic. I just found it so much easier to say, well, you know, that's a tiny minority and uh, they aren't really Muslim and they're wildly perverting Muslim texts and try to ignore it and say, you know, look over here, you know, the Indians had this amazing multicultural and flexible, you know, empire and look at how great the Ottomans were. And, and then it occurred to me that was kind of um, a liberal's version of, shutting down any conversation on on violent extremism that was wrapping itself in in Islam and i decided to sort of face the music and listen to uh people who had been drawn into it and their families to try to figure out uh what was what was going on and what what the appeal could be you start close to home at least you start there in the book. You start in the UK. You go to Birmingham to meet a woman named Nicola, whose son Rashid had run away to join ISIS. Why don't you tell us who she is? First of all, how you found her. How do you even approach somebody like this? What? Where does it all begin? Well, it was very, very hard back in 2017 when I found, uh, when I started reporting this to find people who were willing to speak. And among the very few parents and particularly and, and mothers who wanted to speak was Nicola, who had given an interview uh, to the BBC. And I approached her through an organization that helps parents who worry about uh, their children being radicalized and went up to Birmingham really expecting a, you know, wondering what, you know, the mother of an ISIS fighter would be like. And, you know, for all my years of sitting around trying to deconstruct 
Orientalist stereotypes. And um, for all my knowledge of how, you know, there was a, a wide range of folks who were who were going over there. I, I still expected a woman in a black burqa, uh, very stern and very pious. And of course, the woman who meets me at Birmingham train station clips along in stiletto heels and has uh, pearls and, you know, a diamante brooch uh, fixing her hijab. Uh, Nicola was a convert from Wales and her son was very young when he began to be concerned about um, Muslim kids over in Syria and, you know, got quite excited that um, there was now a caliphate that he could go to. And one morning she uh, woke up and he was gone. How old was he at that time? He was 18, I believe. 18 or 19, actually 19 when he left. And, you know, they weren't a particularly overtly pious family. I mean, they were pious, but they weren't, you know, militant by any means. And, you know, she... It was heartbreaking watching her sort of try to pace back over the past and try to see the signposts for Rashid going over there. And, you know, there were, there were little things that in, you know, with 2020 hindsight, she could see, you know, he began growing his hair longer or he told his dad he didn't want to go to the same mosque that the whole family had always gone to. And he wanted to go to a, you know, a mosque that had, was sort of younger and edgier across town, not edgier, but certainly had a more more hard, hardcore, more hard, had a reputation for being more hardcore. And, but talking to her, you know, I had expected, you know, the beetle browed guys we have seen on the television news at ISIS. I mean, really scary commando types. And instead, what I came away with is an image of a Peter Pan, you know, this really young kid who was tremendously idealistic and didn't quite know what he was getting into and went over there and, um, you know, got recruited effectively. Now, you would say, oh, a mother would say this, wouldn't she? But you know, she's quite clear-eyed that he should come home and face, you know, she wanted him to come home. She knew he would go to jail. She knew he did wrong. But, you know, at the same time, some of the details she told me about him were just heartbreaking. I mean, he was so naive that he actually called her to ask whether he could go on his commander's motorcycle. And she was like, Okay, but as long as you're wearing, you know, a helmet, you know, that was an incredible detail. So he's actually being trained to be a killer, a jihadi. And yet at the same time, he is seeking his mother's permission to ride on a motorcycle. I just I I actually I'm hoping you can explain, like, do you know actually what kind of training goes on in these camps, in these establishments, what is likely to happen to somebody like Rashid when he first arrives there? Because I have to say, I was struck by in a lot of these cases that these young people were communicating 
with their families. Like you imagine these guys going away to train to be fighters and are never heard from or seen again. Like the idea that they would be phoning home, it had never crossed my mind. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I guess a lot of times, I mean, she had to wait like 12 weeks to hear from him right? That's um, because he went, you know, the one family that I spoke to in detail about the arrival process was an Indonesian family where they talked to me about how instantly the men were taken away for training and indoctrination. And apparently that's, that is what, what happened was if you went as a family or as a, you know, the women who went were, were, were taken one place and the men would go off for jihadi training. And it's interesting because Nicola was warned that he would be, you know, there would be certain signposts along the way where he would be more and more distant from her. Other, she, she got very close with another mother who I also interviewed named Christiane, who is working with a German de-radicalizer, Daniel Kohler, and together they're, they're trying to help uh, parents sort of cope with what happens when their kids are abroad. And they said, you know, when you see Rush, when Rashid goes off for his first battle after training, he's going to be very distant. And strangely enough, he wasn't at all. He was needier and wouldn't let Nicola off the phone. But yeah, these guys are these guys are taken off and trained, and 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 their passports are taken away. And I, I think their phones were often taken away during training, but I'm not sure. But I do know that they he couldn't call for 12 weeks. Okay. And yeah, I do want to talk with you in some depth about what you might imagine the psychological profile of this kind of young person is. And especially in the case of the family, um, I think they were from Jakarta that you mentioned. I really want to talk about them because that's an incredible case. But before we get to that, let's, for instance, talk about Christiane. So who was her son? How did this all transpire in her family? Christiane is a Canadian accountant uh, who was raised Catholic and is a Catholic, whose son had a rather troubled childhood, um, incredibly bright and bored at school and had witnessed domestic violence and his parents break up and went into a deep depression and a couple of years into it uh, embraced Islam which Christiane thought was was a good thing. She really hoped it would give him purpose and meaning and some sort of spiritual connection. But he, as the years went on, got angrier and angrier. He started going to a particular Quranic study circle. And, you know, he would be increasingly angry at the family you know, when she served alcohol at the table, he would get up and leave. He would take phone calls outside. And, you know, this kid was brilliant, very high IQ. And when he said he wanted to go off to be an Islamic scholar and study in Egypt, uh, you know, he was no longer a kid. He was in his 20s by then. Uh, and this was Chris, in Canada. Just so This is in Canada. Yeah, this, and, is, and this is from Calgary. Yeah. And did he or anyone in the family have ethnic ties to the Muslim world or was he just none like, whatsoever? No. Like a white kid from white Canadian kid. He was a white Canadian kid. Absolutely. Raised a Catholic. 
And yeah, so, so no ties. But I mean, the proverbial zeal of the convert is, is, yeah. you know, there, it has been noticed that converts tend to have, there, there tends to be a higher proportion among them in, in these violent extremist groups. So in that sense, and he, um, he went over, he went to Syria and he would communicate with Christiane by phone or on Facebook, but he was killed in battle. And uh, Christiane then sort of turned it around and became um, a counselor to uh, counsel other families uh, as part of a way to process her, her, her grief. And she ends up living in Toulouse, right? You're, you're traveling <gasps> to France. Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, you know, Christiane's story was very much an index of how sort of the trauma of these, these situations can spread throughout families. She had trouble finding a job because she had spoken out quite publicly to newspapers about her situation. And she couldn't understand why she couldn't get a job as an accountant. And finally, someone in HR said to her, look, you know, when they Google you, they, they see, all they see is that you're a mother of a terrorist. And so she decided to move over to France with her parents and took her uh, then 12 year old son. And um, I think they're back in Canada now, but they, they needed to go over there for a while to regroup. And she ran, she ran counseling from France, fielding calls from worried parents all over the, all over the world during the Islamic state. So at this point in your reporting, were you feeling like you were recognizing patterns? Because in some ways, these stories, they sound similar to the stories you hear about any kind of kid getting involved in a cult or uh, becoming a white supremacist or just kind of getting completely sucked into a destructive, potentially dangerous, violent subculture. Was there something in particular about Islamic extremism that kind of pushed the buttons of these particular kids in this particular way? Well, I mean, I, th- I do think, I mean, one of the things I really wanted to investigate was for 20 years now, this has been presented as a kind of existential threat. You know, the Islamist terrorist is seen as this boogeyman that stands apart from anything else that could go on. And of course, the more I talk to people, you're absolutely right. The more it became clear that this isn't for, especially for very young kids in the West, you know, this is often not very different from other trans, you know, youthful teenage transgressions. It just has much bigger political and um, criminal consequences. Well, and the level of organization is on a whole other level. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Well, a level of what organization? In, well, a in, level of or being or as in being organized. It's not like somebody can decide I want to be a white supremacist and then join some kind of global organization that has some kind of mobilized effort. To well, there's a, certainly a global. 
Right. There's there's certainly a mobilized effort to recruit these kids. Um, that is, and and I think the same is true of white supremacists. You know, you get a kid online who seems kind of vulnerable or lonely, looking for friends, and you start messaging them, and then you suggest a cup of coffee. And um, I mean, in terms of a pattern. I would say, first off, every story is different, that there are so many different reasons that these kids end up joining these groups. And so I would say that on the one hand. On the other hand, the patterns pushing them in, you know, it's often belonging. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for transcendence. They're looking for adventure. And very often someone is, you know, preying on them, is trying to recruit them, exploiting, you know, these yearnings. And so it's a two-way street in that sense. In terms of it being a a special thing for Islamist uh, militants, I actually think I, I found real connections with other extremist groups with, as you say, with cults, there are all sorts of things that we don't sort of box off in this way that we have Islamist extremism that are are equally tantalizing to the teenage brain at this particular point when you're hardwired, you know, you're hardwired to seek adventure and belonging and thrills. Do you have any numbers or does any data exist with respect to how many people get recruited into these groups every year, say how many are in them, like it just in terms of proportion, I want to try to get a sense of what we're looking at. Well, it depends on where you're looking. I mean, the book was very much kind of, you know, snapshots of various countries and, and with it various reasons for people going in at the height of the Islamic state. Um, There were, I believe, 50,000 foreign, well, they're now 50,000 foreign fighters still waiting to come home, I believe. But it really depends. You know, it's an ad hoc, it was an ad hoc thing in terms of locality, in terms of how organized people were, in terms of networks. Um, It it absolutely varies. I don't have any over, you know, I'm I'm sure places like the Sufan Institute um, or or people who are doing a data analysis would have much better figures. And when you say 50,000 foreign fighters waiting to go home, who are you talking about and where are they and what homes are they waiting to return to? At the height of the Islamic State, there were about 40,000 foreign fighters from around the world, from about 110 countries who had joined to fight. And, you know, since the Islamic State was defeated as, a, as an area, some have gone home, um, many were killed, and some were disillusioned. A lot were, you know, a lot lost um, the thrill once they hit the re- reality of the battlefield. There are about 64,000 women, mostly women and children, refugees, sitting in camps in northern Syria now. And countries are trying to decide whether or not to take them back, 
Um, you know, the Russians have taken them back. The Russians have taken, you know, there've been a lot of kids born during the Islamic state. Do you take the kids back? Russia had this program where they took them back and put them back with their grandparents. Uh, we've, I believe, taken a few back, but there've been some real hardline decisions about that. So for example, in the UK where I live, um, there was a very high profile case of Shamima Begum, who joined as a 15 year old schoolgirl, and went off and is now sitting in a, in a resettlement camp and petitioned uh, last year to come back uh, and face trial. She wanted to, but uh, the Home Secretary here stripped her of her British citizenship, saying uh, she was she was, I believe, born in Bangladesh, but is is a British citizen. And so she's sort of been cast into the outer darkness. She can't even come home for a trial under under British law. And was she actually fighting? No, no, she wasn't. I mean, the women, by and large, were, you know, doing, you know, they were they were seen as, you know, reproducers of the next generation. See, this is something I want to understand. So one of the most remarkable stories in your book involves a family in Jakarta, I mentioned a little bit ago, who were drawn into ISIS by their teenage daughter who got seduced through Tumblr accounts. So ISIS recruiters had set up accounts basically telling people that they could pay off their debts, get medical treatment, even go to medical school. Even if they joined, they were promising people this good life. And this family, because of their daughter's influence, their teenage daughter's influence, ended up selling their house and moving to Syria. So tell us about these folks. Well, they were fascinating because... You know, I remember back in the 90s when I, you know, reporting out of Pakistan and everybody was like, okay, poverty is the reason for radicalization. You know, these kids go to these jihad schools and they get indoctrinated. And that was partly true, but certainly not in the case of this family who were upper middle class. The father was a high level civil servant. And, you know, they were leading lovely lives going to play tennis and play at the ball, you know, play at the mall. And this six, then 16 year old who I call Afifa, tremendously bright and leading a kind of dull suburban life. There were a number of Tumblr accounts by women designed to lure young women who would emphasize, you know, this is, this is an Islamic paradise. It's also pure, it's all so friendly, and the fighters are out there, and they don't care about material goods, they just care about piety and living a good Islamic life. It was very much a kind of pioneer, um, kind of come to the new world kind yeah, of Yeah, this is kind of what, we're what we're now calling on social media, trad wife stuff, right? right. Have you exactly. heard this yes. traditional yes. wife, this trad culture? So, yeah. I mean, not to be diminishing of the seriousness of this situation that we're describing, but yeah, it, it's, it was pretty amazing to read as if these guys were sort of sleeping out there 
they were all alone. They needed the the comforts of a good woman. That was kind of my reading of it. Exactly. And there would be something. There would be something seductive about that to a teenage girl who's just kind of you know spending her her days at the mall, uh, immersed in kind of cheap material culture. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's you know analysts have looked at kind of the nervous the nervous middle classes who have relatively recently become very serious about their Islam. And, you know, the sense of that there's, there's a kind of brittle identity there and the idea of committing to some, this wholeheartedly sounds very appealing. In Afifa's case, a lot of it comes down to, as her sister said, work life balance. You know, the notion of, her father was a workaholic in, in, you know, climbing the ranks of the civil service and she wanted more time with him. So, you know, she would ask a recruiter, you know, can my father get a job over there? And they were like, oh, of course, of course. And if he doesn't want to work, he can even do that. You know, they would tell, they would drip whatever she wanted to hear into mm-hmm. her ear. And it wasn't just a FIFA, it was also her uncle. But in the end, it was 26 members of this extended family going for all sorts of different reasons, ranging in age from a two-year-old toddler to an, a, you know, a grandmother in her 80s, and you know, struggling across the border from Turkey into Syria. And they quickly became disillusioned. Uh, when they saw it up close and personal, which is a very um, common uh, trajectory, I think, once you make it to the the jihad, the cold, hard reality of it often. Right. And so I, I, I may have misspoken. Were they living in Turkey? I thought they were in Indonesia for some reason. No, no, no. I'm sorry. They, they weren't. You were absolutely right. They were they were in Indonesia. They lived in Java. Uh, in a town uh, and in Java, and then um, flew to Turkey, okay. did some sightseeing before they <laughs> drove to the border. Got to get that in. You got to see the Blue Mosque, and uh, then they they you know they hired some smugglers and climbed over fences and walked for hours. And when when they reached uh, the Islamic State, Afifa you know fell to her knees and kissed the earth. Okay, so when you say when they reached the Islamic State, what does that look like? Like there is somebody there to greet them. The person who brought them over, is that person part of the hard sell? Like, I just want to get my mind around this scenario. Like they just sort of, they sell their house, they go en masse. What are they thinking all of this time? And how quickly do they become disillusioned? They were thinking you know, a variety of things when they went, they had, they had this, you know, one aunt had an autistic child that she wanted medical care for one, you know, the grandmother very much hoped to die in blessed Shams in blessed Syria, uh, thinking mm-hmm. that that is, so they, they, they all have these hopes and dreams. There are smugglers that you can contact. And certainly the recruiters make that very easy for you. Uh, when you get to, the Turkish Syrian border and they had to break up into smaller groups. And, you know, the 84 year old grandmother ripped her leg as they were climbing over a barbed wire fence and, you know, and uh, the smugglers take them and they say here, and then, 
in their account, um, three or four men from the Islamic State said, you are now in our territory. Uh, they took them to a safe house where they rested, changed clothes. Uh, Afifa being 16 or 17 at the time was very excited about uh, changing into a burqa. Wow. And so you are there and then you're in their case, they were taken to Raqqa, which was sort of the main town in the Islamic state. Right. How was she sort of presenting herself as a teenage female before this, we talked about going to the mall sort of euphemistically, but when you just said she was very excited about putting on a burqa, that really kind of hit me. Like, was she wanting to get away from a kind of secular culture that felt scary to her or exploitive? What was appealing to her, to to women? Let's just start off with her. And then I want to talk about what's appealing about this to various kinds of people. But in the case of Afifa. In the case of Afifa, it's clear she is very, very bright and very, very headstrong. And, you know, when she was a young teenager, she started reading accounts of the prophet's life, which in, you know, Islamic tradition, there, there are biographies of the prophet that paint the early days of Islam as rather marvelous, as you know, it's a young community and they're all working together. And, you know, it can be very romantic and especially romantic when you've, you're, you're in this kind of halfway house uh, in terms of, you know, are you suburban? Are you, are you not? So this, this idea of wanting an Islamic identity became increasingly important to her. But it was mixed up with these very, you know, ordinary, ordinary, you know, desires. Um, you know, guess what? We can go to med school for free, she tells her sister. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's not, it's not, I don't think it was a running away from secularism. It was, it was more idealism in a way. Um, it was more just, let's get away from it all. Um, which, which is, is, you know, and, and Nicola actually talks about this too. She says, look, we are living in a time when so many people are looking for their identities, are looking for a simpler, you know, gentler way of life. Then the Islamic state comes along and says, look, we can build something new together, something fresh together, something new but also something that harkens back to the to the days that we've always been told are the most beautiful days in Islam, the, the days of the Prophet Muhammad. That's a pretty seductive potion right there. In the case of Nicola's son, Rashid, for instance, he had, I believe it was a Moroccan father. She was a convert. She was from Wales. Was there a sense when you were talking to her that Rashid felt like he was the target of racism, of Islamophobia, that his skin color perhaps was making him particularly vulnerable to this kind of recruitment? Like how, how much does just plain old racism and, and skin color, let's just face it, factor into this? In Rashid's case, that wasn't, that wasn't it. Um, the recruiters exploited his parents' temporary separation and, you know, nostalgia for going back to a simpler way of life. 
but it wasn't racism in his case. I did talk to um, other families and other former militants who absolutely felt racism was was a big factor. Uh, the son of one of the Belgian women I talked to basically got to the age of 18 and though he you know spoke Arabic, French uh, and a couple other languages could not get a job interview and was just like, there is no future for me here. I'm heading for Syria. It's very common. And I think, you know, it varies widely from country to country, but, you know, in countries like France, Germany, there has been a real, you know, difficult relationship with um, immigrants. And there's not, there's no myth of being an immigrant nation that, that we have in the United States to fall back on. Um, certainly mm-hmm. in France, it's been an incredibly clumsy and quite securitized reaction to um, Islamist terror. And of course, they've had major, major tragic attacks, but that their solution to it has been, you know, okay, we're going to make these guys French, which uh, right. doesn't work. Right. So it's assimilationist rather than integration. Exactly. exactly. With these guys, okay, let's just go back to Afifa's family for starters, because okay, I'm, I'm just so fascinated by them. <laughs> okay. So there's, there's men of different generations in this family. Did any or all of them or any, did any of them think they were actually going to go fight and like brutally kill people? What did they think was going to happen once they joined this group? Well, Afifa had sold her father on going to have an office job if he wanted one. You know, a recruiter had assured her that he'll make much more money. And if he doesn't want to work, he won't have to work. So, no, they did not think of themselves as fighting. They literally thought that they were going to go and, you know, you know, build a suburban home in, in, in this new paradise. The parents... I'm fascinated by the parents. I interviewed the mother. The father was in jail. And, you know, I kept pressing her. I kept saying, you know, what, what were you thinking? You know, I even, I even tried to kind of say, you know, I understand what it's like to have a very, very headstrong kid. And, you know, if you're pretty easygoing, you know, you don't, you don't, and, you know, but what, what, and she kept, They were terrified that Afifa would run away because she had run away for a little, you know, a couple of days, just decided if my parents won't agree to going to the Islamic State, I'm going to find a way there myself. Did she have mental health issues or did they perceive her to be so fragile that they needed to sort of do anything they could to to save their kid? Because I thought that was a great moment where you say parents who feel that they're child is in crisis will do anything to save their child Mm. but it doesn't even sound like it was that extreme for this family at this point not at all i mean she was at the top of her class she was she was very insistent and you got the sense that that the other folks in her family were were more laissez-faire as it were and when and she got she got fixated on this but i wouldn't say mental illness and indeed, when you look at people who join terrorist groups, they they tend to, 
be, have have no more mental illness than other you know other populations. Um, but in Afifa's case, it was that she ran away for a couple of days, or not even like overnight, and oh ended God. up hiding at a teacher's house. And they found her, and she said, "I want to, I want to, you know, I really, really want to do this." And it took a little more time. And I have to say, an uncle was also pressing for this in terms of the wider group, so it wasn't okay. Afifa alone. To, I was um, say this is this is a lot of uh, credence and power given to a to a sixteen a, a young girl. Yeah. Yes. So absolutely that would uh, go against many of our assumptions. Okay. Well. Did and once they got there, did any of the men in the family actually take up arms? You say the father is in jail. Is that just by virtue of him having gone there in the first place, or did he actually commit violence? According to Afifa, it's very, very hard to figure out, and this is one of the difficulties with prosecuting people when they come home. It's very hard to figure out what people did and didn't do. I mean, they're you know, you do radicalization experts and terror experts say that, oh, suddenly the Islamic State had like thousands of bus drivers because everybody comes out and claims they just drove buses. They didn't go into battle. But <laughs> it seems that that's the, that's the cover. That's the go to. That's cover. what you say. Yeah, I, I drove a bus or, you know, I, I mended shoes or something. Because of course there will there will be very different consequences in your in in the country you're returned to, but no the two men I believe according to a FIFA were were brought into military training but didn't fight and actually there's there during the process of a FIFA and her and the women's sort of disillusionment with the Islamic State in part. Um, came about when they saw up close and personal just how horrible everybody was to each other. And one of the things um, when a policeman comes to their house to talk to them said, you've never given anything to the Islamic State. Your men didn't even fight. So they, I, I don't think they did fight, um, but I can't, I can't confirm that. And the way you describe where they're living and the people they're with, it really just sounds like the the dormitory from hell. Like <laughs> these people are rude. They're they're unclean, is, at least in the men's quarters. Like they're not washing their clothes. They're not showering. There, it's just this like really kind of revolting free for all. And again, I just want to understand the kind of infrastructure here. And I think most people probably are are equally befuddled it's like is there is there a campus are there training grounds are they going to classes like what does this place consist of i mean they're in a town i mean raqqa okay you know, so it's, they're city. in raqqa so yeah, it all and it basically yeah. functions all of raqqa's mission is to to train jihadis is that well, fair no. to say i mean it's it was part of the islamic state so they right they, you know it's an ordinary town that has been taken over. So I believe the men were in training camps and the women got taken to this, as you say, the uh, dormitory from hell uh, where everybody was very quarrelsome. And as Afifa's sister said, some of them seemed to have anger issues um, such as, you know, <laughs> fighting with knives in the kitchen and screaming yeah, that's to the each other. Under, understatement of the year. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. She's, she's, uh, very diplomatic. Um, but so they were, they initially were moved to this dorm. And then I think they got their own house. 
but but yeah, I mean, that's another thing. It, it's not as though this is a giant, you know, training camp or battlefield. It is, you know, there was normalcy. They would go to the they would go to you know the markets and look for used clothes. They would go try to look for eventually try to look for smugglers to take them out. So mm-hmm. um, I'm not. I'm not downplaying, you know, the the fear they must have felt, but um, there there was a modicum of normal life. They would go to the bazaar and be screamed at by the, you know, police for not having their double veils over over their faces and so right. on. Did Afifa ever uh, talk about her feelings about the the veil and the burqa as time went on? I mean, was was the double veil a, a bridge too far, or did she continue to? to find a kind of um, a kind of power or novelty in that. I don't know. She didn't, we didn't talk about it. I mean, she, she did, she did say, you know, when I started to realize that this was not the Islamic paradise I had imagined was when I was at the bazaar one day and I had one of my veils flipped up and they came and yelled at me really loudly as though I had done something terrible. And Uh, she said, you know, that, that was sort of one of the first kind of inklings that this was not all that it appeared to be. And those kind of cracks in reality are a real, um, that is a theme you see throughout, uh, former extremists tales where suddenly up close, they, they see the writing on the wall and it's like, wait, you know. And, and her yeah. family went through a whole, a whole disillusionment period, but it still, you know, they were there for 18 months. Um, so it took them a while to escape in a sort of, you know, classic across a boat being shot at, um, waving a white flag uh, es- escape scene. And what had happened with their money? Had they given it to the Islamic State? Like they sold their house. What, what did they do with that money? They used it to pay smugglers. Um, okay. They, you know, and um, they used it. Yeah, I think I think that is essentially what they did, um, and then used it to get back. When I when I visited um, the the women of the family, I guess about a you know less than a year after they got out, they were living in very humble circumstances, and were you know, Afifa had all sorts of. Um, ideas about, you know, starting an, um, first she, she wanted to make cloth purses and sell them on the internet. So, um, you know, they, they would have to make money. Speaking of what goes on in these training camps, what these men end up being trained to do and actually doing, you attended a conference, I guess, a convention. I don't know what the word would be of, former ISIS fighters, former Islamic extremist fighters uh, in Jakarta. And there were um, a number of interesting characters there. Tell us about that particular business trip. The conference was pretty extraordinary. It was the brainchild of this guy, Huda Noor Ismail, who runs an NGO for former jihadis in Indonesia. And... He, you know, I started off the trip uh, 
he was like, well, come, there's still room in the hotel. You know, you know, we have 20 jihadis staying here, but yeah, I, I think there's still some room. <laughs> and I was like, like, would you like to be on a high floor? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. And I, I was like, I, I couldn't get up. the. Gu- I was like, you know, I'm going to stay next door and I'll walk to the conference because um, among their number were guys who had actually, you know, blown up high rise hotels um, uh, in or been involved in plots to, to blow up high rise hotels. So I decided to stay next door, but it was his idea is that mixing people up, that one of the problems is that jihadis will, you know, go to war, then come back and they're stuck in the same networks. So, Noor's idea is, you know, get them meeting other kinds of people, get them. So, and these are guys, you know, they'd all pretty much done time in prison and there were four generations of them. Noor, Noor had, you know, we had a conference with absolutely, you know, all the classic conference trappings. You know, we had swag bags with a big logo saying bridging without prejudice across it. And we had pens and paper and um, Hoda would run around with, with his microphone. He opened the conference saying, you know, we've got four generations of jihadis here today. And, oh you know, the first generation was the, you know, uh, somebody, a, a gray beard who had gone to Afghanistan to fight with the Mujahideen back in the eighties. And then there were people from, you know, the Philippines who had gone to fight in the Philippines and so on. And then, and then the, the, the youngest and kind of the star of the show was Afifa, who we just been discussing and her family. And, you know, they're just back from the Islamic state. They're going to, and the idea was he had invited filmmakers. He had invited uh, a woman who instructed people on how to give TEDx style talks, how to tell your story, um, videographers, entrepreneurs, businessmen to do workshops so that these guys could see a way forward. So the only way out of this lifestyle is to become a sort of influencer, (laughs) TED talker type. Well, that was... There's nothing more (laughs) of the moment than that. It was, it was, you know, when we were, when we were sitting there and we had to do these exercises and turn to the person next to you and tell them your life story with, you know, the, the requisite pivot point and the requisite, you know, message that you wanted to give at the end. Um, it was surreal. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but his idea, I mean, in part, this is, his theory is that the more you, you share the disillusionment that you find when you actually go to jihad and you tell, tell people about, you know, the reality behind the battle, it is actually a preventative for other people who might have the same sort of shiny eyed idealism that, that we saw in Afifa. So that's telling their stories and the government in Indonesia regularly kind of puts former jihadis on, uh, on TV and has them tell their stories so that, that people can see that it's not all it's cracked up to be. Okay, but there were some people there who were pretty scary. So tell us about a couple of those, possibly one in particular. 
you know, I felt like, you know, I was like, I'm here to listen. I'm here to, and I did, I did feel like, you know, okay, I'm, I'm beginning to understand why this one guy went because he thought he was joining an NGO and it turned out to be an armed NGO. And this other guy who was, you know, um, had, had just loved guns all his life and joined, but, um, there was one person and this was, you know, the normal conference where you're supposed to be having lunch with people and chatting to them over tea in the afternoon and mingling, mingling, mingling. But there was, uh, on the first day, my translator leaned over to me and she's like, see that guy over there. And he looked like everybody else. And of course, um, this guy had been convicted very publicly of um, beheading two Christian schoolgirls, um, teenagers, exactly the ages of my own daughters. And um, this was in a Christian Muslim sectarian kind of uh, battle um, in, in Indonesia, uh, in a particular region of Indonesia. And he had been, you know, it was very brutal and very awful. And, and she's like, yeah, um, he's out of prison. And I, for the conference, I could not bring myself to go up and talk to him um, and kind of avoided him, even though he, you know, would be in front of me in the coffee line or whatever. And on the last day of the conference, I was waiting for the elevator and um, who should show up next to me um, with no one else around, but the man that I had in my own head begun calling the beheader. And, you know, we exchanged platitudes, you know, are, are you, how do you enjoy Indonesia? And I'm, I'm feeling super shaky uh, at this point. And I was like, you know, if I were really doing my job as a journalist, I would sit down with him and ask him his story. Cause I'm sure there's a story there, but I just, I kind of hit, hit my bedrock there. And, you know, all my, like, let's exercise our empathy muscles just kind of gave out and felt like jelly instead. Well, I mean, that's, a big ask for anybody to maintain any kind of composure around this guy. I mean, it's extraordinary that he's walking around this conference. People are standing behind him in the coffee line. People are talking with him. Was he somebody who had been brought in as a speaker? Was his rehabilitation process an example to be cited? What was his role there? He was one of the, you know, one of the jihadis. Um, there were sort of, you know, um, 20, he was just, just a participant. It wasn't, he wasn't cited specially, um, you know, and, and, you know, he, he was just an or, ordinary guy by this time, you know, that people, he now teaches at an Islamic boarding school. Oh my um, gosh. And, you know. Wait, wait, I, wait, 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 wait. This guy beheaded two schoolgirls, and he's not only not in prison anymore, he's teaching at a school? That is what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's, how your job <laughs> as somebody who knows a lot about the Muslim world, whatever that means, and I know that doesn't mean much because it's so incredibly broad, but what do you say to the person who says, and I think understandably, 
I cannot get my mind around that kind of scenario. I can't get my mind around any kind of culture, any quote unquote religion, belief system, tradition that would give a pass to any scenario in which that kind of thing could happen. I mean, how do you process that? I would never condone something like that. Certainly something that he did. But I would also really urge people not to connect it to a particular religion, not to connect it to uh, a particular culture, even. You know, I can't speak for what Indonesian jail sentences are in the Indonesian penal code. And and in this case, I obviously sort of hit hit my dead end in terms of trying to understand or trying to you know, I've ranted and raved against people who just use evil as a kind of blunting, you know, and blunting tool not to ask why people do things. And in this case, I sort of failed to, to explore it. But do I condemn what he did? Obviously. This is Monsters is a true crime podcast and YouTube channel where I tell the stories of the worst people on the planet. Though the stories of the victims are told, we focus on the monster who carried out the evil act. The show is split into seasons, and each season has a theme. In season one, we covered cases of filicide, which is the act of a parent killing their own child. In season two, we covered cases of people killing for love. We recently finished up Season 3, where we covered cases of parricide, which is the act of someone killing their parents. Tune in now as we start Season 4, where we dive into the minds of family annihilators, sick individuals who decided to destroy their entire families. Check us out anywhere that you listen to podcasts or on YouTube by searching This is Monsters. Well, I just... I'm sure you run into this question all the time. What do you say about the fact? I mean, it appears to be a fact that this kind of crime, this kind of killing, beheading of children is something that is more often done in the name of Islam than in a Judeo-Christian tradition or God knows Hinduism, Buddhism, why is this kind of violence connected to Islam? One of the things that I really want to argue, I want to work away from is this is not linked to Islam. As you unpick these terrorist horrors, they are much closer to power politics, to local skirmishes, to other, they are not ideological and they certainly aren't, aren't prescribed by Islam. I do think that the Islamic State in particular used a particular strategy which paraded savagery. I mean, that, that was by design and we heard a lot of horror stories But I would also urge people to think about what is much less reported. It's not linked to Judeo-Christianity, 
but it is linked to, you know, our power, which is, you know, we drop bombs on civilians in the Middle East. It doesn't get reported. And, you know, we drop bombs on wedding wedding parties in, you know, northern Pakistan, and it merits a tiny news item. I don't think this has to do with Islam. I think it has to do with power and um, cultures of violence that come out of particular local situations. That said, these extremists are purporting that they are enforcing these codes in the name of Islam. Whether or not it has to do with Islam as it's broadly defined or as you experience it, the fact is that these tribal traditions, these kinds of um, what we would see as completely uncivilized, quote unquote, ways of maintaining some kind of society, those have been linked by the very people who are enforcing them to Islam. So what do you say about the fact that it is in Islamic countries where the clock is being turned back when it comes to norms of what it means to be a civilized society? I mean, we know all too well that as recently as the 70s, countries like Egypt and Iran were functioning much like Western societies, at least in cities. You know, people were, women were going out to discos. People were sitting in cafes and and drinking and there was a there was a secular culture and obviously why and when all of that started to change is a different conversation but i'm sure that as somebody who is a scholar uh, in in a lot of these issues and somebody who's been reporting a, about the islamic world and the middle east for for decades you you know these details intimately so I hate to say, what is your short answer to this? But you must come up against this all the time. Like, why is it that we are seeing this kind of repression and enforcement of of really, really sort of just, I hate to say backwards, but I will. You know, girls can't go to school. Women can't go out of their houses. There are honor killings. Yes, those things are taking place in in very small rural kind of backwater communities that doesn't represent mainstream Islam, but there is not a sort of Judeo-Christian, for example, version of it. So how do you, I think there is a Jude- well, I mean, there, there certainly are Judeo-Christian version or, you know, there's, there's certainly a Christian version of not on, letting girls go to school. Oh, I'm not, well, we just limiting the rights of women. I, it's not, it's not the same as in Afghanistan. Yeah. Look, What you have in, you know, I hate to make any generalizations, but take, for example, the Taliban and they're not wanting to go. That is not necessarily, you know, it is an interpretation of Islamic principles that have to do with a very localized Pashtun, one particular group in Afghanistan interpretation of, of culture and, and of, and the, you know, culture and, and religion get marbled together over time. And, you know, they're, they're, that is their interpretation of Islam. It's, it's a very particular one. But what has happened more globally and why you are seeing is, is a combination of things. You are seeing the export by the Saudis since the 70s of their form, Wahhabi 
of Wahhabi Islam, which kind of ground down and, and, and blotted out much more, you know, you ground down the Sufi tradition, you ground down much more quietist and flexible uh, manifestations of Islamic cultures. And you had the Saudis literally exporting people and schools and Korans with particular, you know, p- particular translations that, that conform to the, the high bound Saudi way. And you also at the same time get groups in places like Iran and Egypt who were living under American backed dictators effectively, you know, who, who were stifling political speech. And one of the few ways that you had to get a local movement together is to speak in an Islamic language, to speak using the culture and, and the, and the faith that you all shared. And so often resistance to anti-democratic forces, you know, whether it's the Shah in Iran or various leaders in Egypt would take on um, an Islamic tinge. And this, you know, you know, some groups got more and more, you know, radical as, as that went on. That's, that's a much bigger story, but I do think that it, there is a conflagration of political, local, local tradition, you know, sort of local geopolitics and, and also um, a sense of a stifling of, sort of the kinder, gentler, more educated traditions, thanks to the Saudi export of Wahhabi, you know, ideology. Yeah. So speaking of the, the 70s, you spent a lot of time in the Middle East as a kid growing up. Um, you talk a lot in both of your books about the affinity that your father had for that part of the world. Um, you, you write really movingly about how he struggled with depression and um, coming to countries like, I think you were in, well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I know you were in Afghanistan a few times. You spent, your family spent a lot of time in, in India. You grew up in the Midwest and the Mideast. <laughs> so you grew up in St. Louis. Your mother was a college professor. Was your father an academic as well? Yeah, he was a law professor. Okay. Um, yeah. And so were, did they have particular academic interests? Um, in in the Middle East, or did they just like it? Um, my dad was uh, a law professor with with a passing interest in Islamic law, um, but I think what really drove him was he he suffered with lifelong depression, and he felt better when he was abroad. Um, he wasn't such. He wasn't such an uh, an eccentric when he was overseas. He was just, you know, an American kind of thing, and could, you know, he really delved into um, learning the language. And you know, every week would go say to the bazaar and come back with a with a rug. Um, he was aesthetically entranced by it, as so many Westerners were at that time. Um, uh, particularly in Afghanistan, you, you, you talk to people. I remember after, after 9-11 reading um, the accounts of Americans who had been there um, before, before the Soviets invaded 
And you'll get these, you know, suburban housewives saying, I just sometimes pull over my car and I think of the blue of the cobble sky. And I just, I just have to sit there and think of it. So it, it did, it was quite, it was certainly Afghanistan was quite a special place. Um, but yeah, my, my, my dad was um, there to help in Kabul uh, to help the minister of justice. You incorporate tribal law into a modern constitution. He was a Fulbright uh, fellow there helping out and, uh, I've been thinking a lot about him over these past few weeks because, of course, uh, yeah, it did not work out. So when did you first go there? Were you like in elementary was, school? What was it like? I I really just want to know what it was like. Were you going to like an, a public school in St. Louis, and then your parents said, "Oh, we're we're going here. You're going to have to." Pretty much, adjust. yeah, yeah. They 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 were not shy about picking us up at a moment, you know, relatively <laughs> short notice and going off. And we did this, you know, sort of every couple of years. Um, yeah. And we went, and of course, I mean, the great irony was that as an 11 year old, I lived a much more American life in Kabul in 1978 than I did back in St. Louis. You know, we had a house that if you squinted looked like it was out of suburban California and we had a dog and, you know, we would go to football games uh, in every weekend, you know, um, because there was this kind of, you know, edifice of American life that the 300 Americans there had constructed. And my parents, you know, want, were wanderers, but they knew they wanted to keep some sort of continuity. And you were speaking English? You were living yeah, in a kind of yeah. expat community? Yeah, well, not, yeah. I mean, I went to the American International School of Kabul and um, where there were cheerleaders and, and um, you know, Sadie Hawkins dances and so on. Um, you know, and it, it was a really odd kind of Laura Ingalls Wilder kind of experience because you you hoarded these bits of Americana there you, you, I mean, I remember, you know, when the, when the local American commissary got bubble yum and I would, <laughs> I would only allow myself like half, half a piece of bubble yum. Well, half a, meat. half a piece of bubble yum is already the size of a stick of butter. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, it was a very strange edifice. And then of course, you know, um, we were living a two time. We were, we were part of the, you know, an Imperial project. We were sort of perched on top of Afghanistan um, in, in a questionable way, I would say at, at that point. I, I want to circle back to Afghanistan in, in a minute, but just, I want to make sure before we conclude our conversation that, that you, you say everything you, you might have to say in terms of what you've learned about the psychology of this. I mean, I don't, I know we don't want to draw any generalizations, but I was really struck by all the, the parents that you spoke with, the, the formers, so to speak, the, the people who, who came back from this kind of indoctrination. It sounded in many cases a lot, and I said this at the beginning, like people who talk about having been deprogrammed 
from a cult. They talk about why they were drawn into this kind of organization or group. And a lot of it comes out of feelings of loneliness or that they don't really have something to attach their identity to. I mean, we've skipped over a lot. You you also speak to Americans, somebody in Minneapolis, for instance, who Americans who become radicalized into Islamic extremism. I mean, this is really you, you literally take us all over the all over the map. Um, but do you, having done all this research, have insights into the quote unquote cult mentality, to use a reductive term, uh, that you didn't before you started this? Yeah, I mean, I do think it is, you know, at its baseline, radicalization is a kind of whittling away of the ability to see other guys' points of view. And 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 kind of moving towards a certainty that you didn't have beforehand. And that certainty is something that, you know, a lot, a lot of people are seeking at times like this. So I would definitely, I can see the attraction of it. Um, you know, I, and, and it's funny, I, I, during the pandemic, which apparently has been boom time for white supremacist recruiters uh, on the internet. You've got a captive audience of kids who are bored at home. And uh, increasingly, you know, if, if they've been in lockdowns as, as we have been here, have nothing to do and, and want some sort of, you know, want, want some sort of community, want some sort of retail. Um, you know, experts are saying it's kind of a perfect storm for recruiters. So I do think in a way it's, I'm looking at how people are desperate for connections, certainly in the, in the West. I think there, I should, I should say that, that there are all sorts of other reasons, you know, political and social that, that folks outside Western societies might join. And, and that's it. That's, that's another reason, but certainly um, the sense of wanting some sort of purity and certainty is something that afflicted even, you know, most of us, I would suspect during yeah. the pandemic. I mean, I found myself, you know, seeing a news story about, you know, Tuscan hillsides being sold for, for, you know, a euro and plotting my escape to, to purity and certainty, you know, we'd grow organic <laughs> right. vegetables and, you know, teach our own kids and whatever. I'm, I'm not making light of this. I actually think that one thing that recruiters prey on are, are very human things that are, that are present in all of us. And I think the best programs and people working in this recognize the possibility for all of us to be radicalized given the right uh, can the right circumstances. Yeah. And speaking of that, I want to make sure we touch on your research in Denmark. Um, you go to a town called Aarhus. Am I pronouncing Aarhus, that? Yeah. Aarhus. Um, yeah. In, uh, it's a, it's a town in Denmark that seems to have an especially humane and innovative approach to rehabilitation. You meet a guy named Thorleith Link, who's a detective. Um, what is it about his approach 
besides the fact that I think that he's allowed to work with like one person for for years <laughs> at a time, that's a it's a it's a one on one kind of mentorship. Um, what are they doing differently there? The critics of Aarhus is quite famous in in terms of in deradicalization circle, and its critics call it a hug a terrorist approach. Uh, because <laughs> oh, I thought that was going to be like a religion, like I'm a hugatarian. But I see, yes, <laughs> hug a terrorist. I'm a hugatarian. Yes, a hug no. a terrorist. Yes, okay. And you know they set up this program where, as 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 Thorleaf calls it, you know people who are worried about radicalizing or indeed during the Islamic state who are coming back from the Islamic state could drop by what he calls the little yellow house, which was sort of like an Ikea setup with, with coffee cups and, you know, stripped pine tables and so on. And you drop in and have a cup of coffee. And their idea was, look, you know, we need to, keep talking to these people and we need to help them on um, their roots out of this. So if that means finding you a job, finding you an apartment, finding you a psychologist, um, Thorleaf worked with somebody who he actually, who wanted to be a journalist and um, he, he came out of prison and um, you need to take an exam to become a journalist in, in Denmark and so he, Thorleaf went and got a, a journalist who agreed to tutor this guy. Um, and, you know, they worked together. So it, it's very hands-on. It's very labor intensive and it can last years. It also like pivots on the fact of a welfare state. This is Scandinavia yeah. at its most kind of fairy tale support system network where it's like, sure, we can help you. Um, now I should say that, that um, I think that, that there's an interesting kind of intrusion of the state into, into, you know, like they know everything about you. Um, if you've, you know, had a fight with your neighbor or if you, um, you know, got, got expelled from school, there is a database that keeps all this stuff together. So there were the systems were in place for, you know, the police in our host to set this up so that they could. So, you know, I, you know, none of these programs I I'm saying can be grafted onto American culture or, you know, Indonesian culture. You have to look, you have to stay local, but um, our house was, was fascinating in, in the resources they, they poured into um, these returning ISIS fighters. Yeah, you, you do make the point that obviously this is particular to the political DNA of a country like Denmark. But I think it's worth remembering that the mentorship piece was very much in place in Minneapolis, I think, right? They they found um, uh, a guy who was a teacher who I can't remember what he was of Muslim heritage. He's Somo- he was um, first generation Somali right. American. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but the interesting thing about, about the Minneapolis case, and it was fascinating, you know, here was a young man who had become interested in going to the Islamic state, um, tried to go to the airport is apprehended and then later ends up um, in prison for it. And, 
you know, this was a one-off and this was something that was set up by three very energetic uh, individuals with the, with the blessing of the judge in the case who sort of right. took a risk. And these, you know, three people working pro bono and um, Ahmed Amin, who's this extraordinary charismatic Minneapolis high school teacher and debate coach who took on Abdullahi and, you know, basically gave him um, a civics class, but a civics class with a reading list ranging from David Foster Wallace to uh, Malcolm X to, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates. And they sat down in the prison cell and had discussions about identity and what does it mean for Abdullahi to be a part of the American project and what does it mean to be a black man in America? And this, you know, this was a painstaking thing, but there was no money. And it was it was done through a, a really extraordinary bunch of people who uh, there, there's no structure there. Right. Yeah. This is all, always the case in America. Lucky. Yeah. yeah they'll, exactly. they'll end up making a movie about it, but it's not part of any kind of um, kind of systematic uh, approach. Right? Exactly. It's a, exactly. It's just a, a very heartwarming lucky, story. Heart- yes. Exactly. And, yeah. Your book was obviously timed to come out around the 20th anniversary of 9-11. As it happens, it's also coincided with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban's immediate regain of control. I know you're not an expert on Afghanistan, even though you, you did live there a few times as a child. But I'm wondering, Carla, based on your reporting for this book and all the years you've spent covering that region, if you have any thoughts about this supposedly, uh, if not kinder, gentler Taliban, uh, supposedly more reasonable, modern Taliban. Is anyone who falls for this being duped? I think the really important thing with the Taliban is something that we didn't necessarily seem to really, really focus on over the last 20 years, which is that there are Taliban and Taliban Um, There's talk now of there's a moderate flank um, and there's a much more didactic hardcore flank. And it sounds like the the hardcore flank may win out. But, you know, again, my hope is that they're going to have to be realistic. But I don't, you know, there has been an amazing myopia on our part in terms of what constitutes the Taliban, you know, we talk about them as they're as though they're their single entity, um, and of course they're not. They're they're fluid. They're networked. Um, you know, you go which way the wind blows at this point. So um, I think we've got to be really clear that we don't necessarily know who we're dealing with yet. Well, Carla, thank you so much for taking all this time to talk with me and congratulations on the book, Home, comma, Land, comma, Security, De-Radicalization and the Journey Back from Extremism. It's really, um, it's such a thorough piece of reporting and you take on a lot of complexities with um, a lot of uh, humanity and just it's very accessible also so uh good i'm glad it's accessible that's uh yeah it's i don't want people to think it's a kind of you know henry kissinger advice tone rather it is just you know 
I would never have Henry Kissinger on this show. <laughs> I'm sure you wouldn't. <laughs> I actually might have Henry Kissinger on the show. In any case, that was my interview with Carla Power. She is a former reporter for Newsweek and the author of a new book, Homeland Security, De-Radicalization and the Journey Back from Extremism. Her previous book is If the Oceans Were Ink, An Unlikely Friendship and Journey into the Heart of the Quran, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. She lives in the United Kingdom. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. This podcast now has a YouTube channel. Thank goodness. It's called The Unspeakable Channel, and it's where you can find video interviews under the new Unspeakeasy Imprimatur. These are informal conversations I'm having with various people, mostly unconnected to the podcast. You can watch part of them on the channel. And if you want to watch the rest, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. There you can get lots of perks, including ad-free early access editions of the podcast, discounts on official nuanced AF merchandise, and access to a new feature, regular Zoom hangouts where listeners get together with me to talk about specific episodes of the podcast. These happen pretty much every other Sunday evening from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And they're really a lot of fun. So please join us if you're so inclined. And even if you're not inclined, your Patreon support really, really helps me, especially as I try to expand this enterprise with all these new features. I'm really grateful for listener support. That's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest, maybe two guests in the same show. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state-of-the-art camp in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs like PRIZE, a unique program for people who have been in recovery but have relapsed. Here, you won't have to start from step one. You'll build off the knowledge you've previously acquired in treatment and focus on the areas of your recovery that need improvement. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most major insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.